Out in the studio with the eldritch horror known as Jason. Thank you. Our other host, Anonymous Mike, can't be with us right now. He's currently away on some spooky government assignment that we really can't talk about. Probably toppling some foreign government. Well, before we get going today, Jason, you've got some words about some friends of the show that you wanted to share. Yeah, I wanted to give another uh, um, big thank you, quite frankly, to Villainous. It's a new tabletop gaming pub that opened up here in Lexington on the corner of Jefferson and Second Street. The owners are nerds, like you and I are, Zach. And I believe that the idea for the pub was going because they had so much, like, Comic-Con memorabilia and everything, they just needed a place to put it. So let's just open a business and adorn the walls with it all. Yeah, like they've got a, a life-size Terminator. A, yes, a, Doctor Doom. A, a giant Doctor Doom that adorns a corner. Yeah, and, and it's it's called Villainous because um, the owner has an affinity for the bad guys in pop culture, you know, whether it's comic bad guys or movie bad guys or even like horror film icons like you know jason voorhees or, or freddie from nightmare on elm street and so he just built up all this memorabilia he's a big cthulhu fan so like the whole bar is just decked out with this stuff and then they also have like all these board games and i'm talking about like you know settlers of Canton, um all like that the, the high-end you know really involved board games nor not monopoly or well, they probably do have monopoly and sorry but the theme is you come in you buy your very affordable drinks and your very affordable food, and you sit down for a while, bring your friends, play a board game, and uh, order up drinks on the side. And it's just a really cool atmosphere, family-owned. It's, it's the couple and their two sons that run the whole thing, and they've been so cool to us. They let us run our ghost walk out of that location. And um, if you get a chance, 191 Jefferson Street here in Lexington, and tell them Gravedigger Radio sent you up. All right, guys. Well, Jason, what do you got for us today? This evening, I wanted to talk about lady killers. I'm not talking about you, Zach. Not talking about, like, good-looking alpha male womanizers. I'm talking about ladies who kill. Okay. All right. And like, I, like like our uh, the quote, Black Widows. Oh, definitely. Definitely some Black Widows involved. You know, the uh, the new Dahmer miniseries is kind of like, you know, all over the place. You know, they just launched that on Netflix a few weeks ago. And I've watched most of it so far. And then everybody's all Dahmer, you know, obsessed right now. But I kind of wanted to flip the script on that a little bit and talk about female serial killers because you just don't hear about them as much, do you? No, I, I feel like you don't. And the thing of it is, too, though, you think about every serial killer that we're familiar with yeah. are the ones that have been caught. Yeah. And so that kind of speaks to women may be better at it. I think that's definitely so. And, you know, if I say name me five serial killers, you're going to Dahmer, you're going to Bundy, you're going to Gacy. You're not, I mean, you probably get through 20 answers before you're like, oh, well, there was that one lady who, like, whacked a bunch of people. Oh, see, though, I have to say, like, there there are two that really come to mind for me, though, of the female serial killers. I don't want to get ahead of us, but, like, you know, the first one that comes to mind is Catherine Knight from Australia. Oh, yeah? She's just, it was an absolute monster. She worked at the slaughterhouse. Everything's worse in Australia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every, literally everything in Australia wants to kill you. And Pretty much. for our Australia listeners, we're, we're terribly sorry, but you know it's true. Yeah. But, like, she had these knives that she was obsessed with and murdered several husbands. And then the other one that comes to mind, like, right off the bat is uh, Belle Gunnis. Okay. 
Stop right there. All right. <laughs> We're definitely going to get into Bella Gunness. I just wanted to bring attention to the female serial killers because, you know, we try to be an equal opportunity podcast. So according to, you know, historical research, there have officially been 64 female serial killers in United States history alone. And other reports say that at any given moment in the United States today, there are probably 25 to 50 active serial killers at any moment. So it's out there and it's happening. We just don't hear about the women as much. I, I just wonder how they come up with that statistic, though. Well, you know, they have the parameters about, like, what defines a serial killer. Obviously, obviously you have to have, like, multiple kills. And there's usually, like, a, a kill, uh, like a cooling-off period where they go, like, dormant for a little bit. And then they get active again and they go dormant. And I don't think there's, like, a like necessarily, like, a head count associated to it. But it's more like the pattern of behavior. One of the big things is a lot of male serial killers will go into what they call, like, a berserker mode or a mm-hmm. rampage mode. Especially if they've held off for too long. Right, to where it kind of boils over and they get super messy and they're super over the top. And that's yeah. normally when they end up getting caught. Yeah. But typically, from what I've seen, female serial killers don't have that berserker mode. No, and, like, you know, um, a lot of them, once they get caught, they're kind of narcissistic about it. Like, even once they kind of bring them in for initial questioning, they're like, okay, I'm going to tell you everything. It's like, wait, we haven't got that much of a case against you yet. But they're like, I don't need a lawyer. Here's everything I've done. Because they want to talk about it. They're very narcissistic about it. But you don't see that so much with the women. You know, uh, and even on our own podcast, um, back in the early days, like some of the earlier episodes, we talked about Lavinia Fisher from Charleston, South Carolina. Now, that, you know, turned out kind of to be a big bunch of nothing, um, more like an urban myth than anything else. And her M.O. was that she ran this roadhouse outside of Charleston, which was like the number two like port in the United States at the time, early 1800s. And so there was a lot of traffic by her place, and she would just woo men in, give them a dose of some tea that she had laced to kind of poison them, at least to the point where she and her associate, her husband, could finish them off. And, you know, the reports, the legend says at least that, you know, they had like up to 40 corpses stacked up in the basement of a roadhouse. Remember all that we talked right, about? Yeah and, yeah, you know, and then the idea that they had a, a body shoot that would shoot the dead yeah, bodies down to the basement. They had the chair that would just dump them. Yeah, like a chair. barber chair that would recline all the way back and just, like, shoot them down into the basement where the husband was waiting to, like, go ahead and do the final act. I think that was, like, our second episode. It was the, really early third. days. I think yeah. it was our third. Yeah. Because I had vacationed down there and heard the story, and I'm like, oh, I want to look into this a little bit. Now, that all turned out to be nothing. But it's funny because her uh, way of going about her business was kind of like on the money as far as like how female serial killers operate. So let's talk about a few just to um, throw some examples out there, you know, for our consideration. The first one I wanted to bring up was Eileen Wuornos. Oh, yeah. How could I forget her? <laughs> yeah. But it's more modern, so it's probably at the front of most people's mind. You know, they made a, a movie about her life called Monster. Uh, this came out in 2003 with Charlize Theron and also Christina Ricci. And uh, Charlize Theron did such a good job that she actually won the Academy Award for Best you know, Lead Role Female Lead Role that year. And um, it's kind of amazing, too, because if you look up some images of Eileen, they were so good at transforming Charlize, who's like gorgeous beyond measure. I mean, she looks spot on, Eileen Warnos, and for that role, and she did an amazing job. And Eileen Warnos is a is a rough looking, yeah. And I mean, total bat shit crazy. And I don't want to be you know mean and demeaning necessarily because she definitely had a very rough life. But you could look at her and tell she had lived rough. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's because um, she was a prostitute. <laughs> 
yeah. mental health issues and alcohol and, and drug issues. But she was only active for a short time, less than two years between 1989 and 1990. Um, and this is all down in Florida where she worked as a prostitute. And what she ended up doing was killing off her Johns at very short range, you know, point blank range um, with a handgun. And, you know, once she was was caught and everything, she claimed to have done all this in self-defense, claiming that these men had been raping her, which obviously, you know, was a pretty thin, thin excuse. Um, she was eventually found guilty of killing six men, although there were seven that were linked to her. They couldn't quite pin the seventh one on her. And she was executed in 2002 by a lethal injection down in Florida. I don't know, you know, because I have a fair bit of knowledge on the whole Eileen Warnos mm-hmm. trial. Do I think it was, do I think all of them were self-defense? No. Do I think some of them were? Probably. Because I mean, because I feel like, especially in that time period, because it was mostly in Florida that it occurred. I mean, I can't imagine that the treatment of a Florida prostitute is uh, (laughs) exactly high class. And I, looking at Eileen Warnos, I can't imagine that her clientele is the upper crust of society. Yeah. So, I mean... I, I think it's one of those things to where everyone involved probably were bad people. Yeah, and we have no idea exactly how many men she, um, you know, did business with um, at the time, and how many more she may or may not have killed. And you know, how I mean, maybe I don't, I don't know, I don't know much about the uh, business, but maybe a lot of people try to stiff, stiff the. <laughs> I'm sorry, that just occurred to me as a terrible pun. Um, <clears throat> tried to stiff their prostitute um, out of payment, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, this went in a weird direction. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I would say that the, the Eileen Warnos case, there's definitely going to be, you know, sexual aggression that's going to occur. Yes. Probably drug use. Yes. Probably, you know, one party's trying to rob the other, and yes. it's hard to say who was trying to rob who necessarily. Yeah. But anyway, she was found guilty of the murder of six of those guys. And like I said, she was executed in uh, 20, uh, 2002. The next one I wanted to mention. Um, now, this person only killed two individuals, Mary Bell. And she was kind of a famous female murderer because she did her acts when she was a very young woman. She killed someone at 10 and she killed someone at 11. And these were younger boys in her neighborhood that she strangled to death. And there are reports it could have possibly been more, but, like, um, the boys didn't die. Like, she would, like, sneak up behind them and shove them down a well or something. But they were rescued. And, like, it just came across as, like, you know, unintentional kind of, like, schoolyard behavior or something. How old were her victims? Younger than her. Okay. That's what I was wondering because I was thinking... You know, not to be sexist, but a 10-year-old girl strangling out a 10-year-old boy, she would have had to have been a, a very large girl. Well, that's the key to the, the, the kind of the overall argument we're, we're trying to explore here. She was quoted, like, why did she do these things? And she was quoted as saying, well, she just simply enjoyed killing things weaker than her. Okay. That, yeah. is, that is some reptile brain, <laughs> animalistic mindset. Yeah, and I believe it was the second murder that um, she was convicted for that she returned to and carved her initials onto the stomach and then further mutilated the body beyond that. And that is something you see with serial killers. They do often return to the scene a lot. And she came back to further mutilate the the, the young boy. She took the idea of, like, burning ants with a magnifying glass 
to an astronomical level yeah. of just brutality of weaker things. So Mary Bell is alive to this day. This was uh, 1968. She served 12 years in prison, again, as a juvenile, um, before she was granted uh, her freedom at age 23. And this was back in 1980. And uh, she was granted full, anon full anonymity for her and her family. So she's out there somewhere living her life to this day, probably a different name, and all her family, different name. But never had any issues as an adult, as far as we know. Don't know. I mean, yeah, I was going to say, maybe she got a, had a knack for it at an early age and has gotten away with it since. Or um, maybe she stopped. We had another case earlier in the podcast about a, a young boy in Victorian England who killed his mom and straightened up and kind of became a model citizen and war hero, lived out his days in Australia. Um, reformed himself, and that urge left him. There is so much study on kids that kill, mm -hmm. and it's it's fascinating. The the little bit of, that I've read about it. I mean, I got better. <laughs> Are, is is this confession time on, <laughs> on the air? Like, what? Man, we have got to work on your segues. Like that is <laughs> that is rough. Let's talk about Janine Jones. Now, Janine was active from 1970 to 1982. And may have killed up to as many as six young children during her um, career as a pediatric nurse. Now, this is a theme you'll hear a lot, actually. Janine Jones is not the only nurse that killed her patients in great numbers. What she would do is she would cause some kind of medical crises in her victims with small amounts of, okay, Zach, you're the medicine guy, so I'm going to butcher this, but... God, another bad pun. I'm going to butcher this, but um, digoxin? Digoxin? Dijoxin. Yeah. It's a G, yeah. So so the thing about Dijoxin, it's actually from the foxglove plant. Ooh. Actually, it's got – it's originally based kind of in a uh, an herbalist kind of remedy in a sense. Hmm. Um, she also used heparin? Yeah, heparin. Yeah. It, heparin is a blood thinner. But she would use these to, like, give them symptoms for something, to make them seem ill. But then she would bring them around – as if she was like this miracle nurse that could like treat their symptoms and bring them out of it. But sometimes <laughs> she botched it. And so the kids would die. So this is like so far removed from the quote angel of death mm -hmm. kind of killer that you see in a lot of these medically related murders. Mm -hmm. But it's still kind of narcissistic. Well, she wanted to show herself as like this great nurse who could bring these children back from the brink of death, but she would induce whatever's, conditions they had to get to get them back it's almost like a really really depraved version of like a hero kind yeah. of complex in psychology where you're putting people in danger to save them to make yourself look like the hero yeah but she's doing it in like the most nefarious ways <laughs> yeah and i say it was up to as many as 60 because the hospital got tired of the lawsuit so they kind of buried a lot of this information and and what time period was um, was she? she was doing this between 1970 and 1982. Oh, okay, yeah. So not that far removed no. from now. Um, again, she's still alive. She was finally convicted and sentenced in 1984, and she's still serving out her life sentence, and currently she's like 72 years old. That's, I mean, that's just mind-blowing. I have to wonder, you know, how she was getting access to these kids to be able to give. Because all these medications... She's a pediatric nurse. Yeah. I mean, you know, these medications, most of them are given IV. I mean, digoxin you, you take in, in a pill form. Mm -hmm. But heparin is an IV medication, or it's a shot. 
Mm-hmm. And so Am I, I giving mean, you any ideas over there? Right, no, God no. No, no. I'm I'm actually mortified of children just even even holding a child stresses me out. So mm-hmm. we would never want to do something like that, but oh my god, I I had never even heard of this person until this exact moment. So that's uh Yeah. No, you're welcome for that, I guess. Right, yeah. That's that, that's great. That lives in my brain now. So now um the big one I wanted to talk about, of course, is Belle Gunness. You mentioned her before. Um, you know, she's from up in Indiana, so I get the crap on Hoosier. So any opportunity I take to do that, I'm certainly going to jump on. Um, and most of this information I took from an Indy Star newspaper article that came out in November uh, 2017, kind of a retrospective of Belle Gunness's career. So um, this all happened up in LaPorte County, Indiana, um, kind of rural, like farming community. And the story kind of begins, you know, starting at the end and going backwards in May of 1908. When her farmhouse was destroyed and the police came to, you know, investigate the the burning and they discovered three bodies inside the house at the time when it burned. One of them, a headless woman. But as they began to poke around, they began to find more and more remains scattered all throughout the property. And the owner, of course, of this house was the aforementioned Belle Gunness, and she turned out to be one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. Belle was a robust Norwegian immigrant. Um, she had four children. Robust is a very nice way to describe Belle Gunness because she looks like Shrek put on a wig. Yeah. She um, is a ghoulish, haunting-looking woman. Um, the article says that was, she was um, especially proficient at hog butchered. So, yeah, I mean, I know that gets the, uh, the old juices flowing. Now, she had been widowed twice before all this. And she began placing newspaper ads in the Midwestern Norwegian newspaper, looking for male suitors. And as she wrote, quote, in the personals column, Comely widow, who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of gentlemen equally well provided with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. (laughs) So that rules you out, Zach. I know, absolutely. <laughs> no, she was definitely all about the money with this. Yeah, absolutely sure. We have one of her letters to a Mr. Carl Peterson, who was up in Wisconsin. She replied to him claiming that she had had over 50 responses to the ad, but she, quote, picked out the most respectable, and I have decided that yours is such. Now, if you think that you are able in some way to put $1,000 cash, again, 1908 money or early 1900s money that's a whopping amount then we can talk matters over personally mm-hmm. netflix and chill bill gunness right at a at, thousand at dollar fee in 1908 which had to be like i know right three or four thousand in today's money more men down to her farm and um take their money of course and she would get on their life insurance po- policies like sign deeds to the property that they brought to the table before slicing them to pieces and burying them on her farm. She reminds me kind of a, of a, like a much uglier Kathy Bates is, <laughs> is what she looks like, especially from the movie Misery. Uh-huh. That's like the image that I have when it comes to Belle Gunn. It's like the most like known thing that I can associate her to. Yeah, we'll try to put some pictures of her up on the Facebook post and oh, stuff when yeah. we launch this episode of it. Um, so we know that at least 10 men answered the ads, but it's hard to tell, you know, exactly how many showed up. Um, it could easily have been 20 or 30 that, that she actually victimized in this manner. 
Not to mention like the fact that she had a man named Ray Lamphere, who was kind of her simp, who was the hired man that helped her run the farm. But he was like completely madly in love with her. So he like helped her like commit all these crimes and bury the bodies and you know dismember all the parts and all that stuff. But of course she knew that if he ever turned on her, you know, the gig was up. And um he he would often kind of like threaten her and get violent because she would always spurn his affections but hook up with these guys from all over the country, you know. And, and I and when, looking at Belle Guinness, I can't imagine somebody getting aggressive with her yeah. because she looks like she'd just pick you up in the air and rip your arms off. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I, she was good at butchering the hogs, but she did have great tracts of land. Uh, uh, I'm sure <laughs> of that. <laughs> so, you know, knowing that he was, you know, a liability, um, she set the, the stage for her own appearance and to kind of like set him up to take the fall. And in April of 1908, she set it up with her attorney since she created a will and then tearfully told him that she feared she didn't have long to live because Ray was threatening her. So the next day, a fire ravaged the gunner's home. And that's when the police showed up and conducted a thorough you know, investigation of the fire. Um, and they noticed they, they, they found a female body in the wreckage, but it was, you know, missing a head. And, and the body that they found was nowhere near the proportions of Bell Gunness. It was mm-hmm. the only thing that they had in common was that it was a female body. Yeah. That, that's it. Yeah. Um, so, of course, they immediately arrested Ray Lamphere because women don't do these things. Men do. And he was um, subjected to a, quote, severe sweating. By the police. He admitted that he did pass, you know, on the morning he went by the house and saw the fire and the smoke. But he was worried that, you know, if he went to the police and everything, that they would suspect him, which, of course, they did, and charge him with arson and God knows what else. During the investigation, A.L. Halen, the brother of one of Bell's missing suitors, arrived in LaPorte County. And he told the sheriff that he suspected that Andrew Halen had met with foul play. So he was one of the suitors that came down and, you know, visited her and whatever else. So, you know, while the police were searching the property, they, they found dozens and dozens of, of his graves dug around the farm, uh, not just Andrew Hagelin, but remains of one victim after another. Um, and weren't they also found, like, in the hog pen and that kind of stuff, like, buried in the, like, the, the pig pens? Yeah, just, just all over the farm. I mean, once you're up in the... <laughs> couple dozens of victims. She was just putting them wherever. You start to run out of space eventually to put bodies, I would assume. Yeah. So, um, you know, Ray still went down for his, you know, involvement in the killings and everything. And he went to the Indiana State Prison. But at this time, he'd come down with, with TB. So he was in bad shape. And there wasn't a cure for TB in 1908. And he gave a deathbed confession um, to his fellow inmate, Mr. Harry Meyer, and that he, you know, Totally came clean to this guy. I told him all of his involvement in the crime and everything else. And it was, he said it was that he was the one that set fire to the home. But before that, he had driven Bell to the railroad station and that the burned female body was that of Bell's housekeeper. And sightings of Bell Gunness were reported for years after this. And in 2008, a forensics team from the um, University of Indianapolis, um, led by a forensic anthropologist, Stephen Naraki, exhumed the remains of Bell's coffin, and they had hoped that they could match up the DNA from a letter that she had sent to one of the victims to prove that she had died in the fire, but unfortunately they couldn't get enough DNA to match it up. So they didn't have enough for a, vi- a viable test. 
what were they going to do? Try to get, like, whatever she had licked an envelope or yeah. something and, and scrape it off of there? Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, that was a long shot at best. And I, I was, I'm really glad that's how, like, the DNA they were hoping to find. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't know what if she was sitting in, like, a pair of panties or something <laughs> in the <laughs> oh, mail. Because the idea of Belle Gunness' bloomers. How did you make this story worse? <laughs> I, I know. That, that's what I do. That's what I bring to the table. Yeah. So, um, I, I liked her her example. That was just a well-developed and well-documented story. And um, obviously, there are a lot of other examples of female serial killers that we could talk about, but we've only got half an hour here. So, I chose these because they line up very well. The research carried out by Penn State psychology professor Marissa Harrison. Harrison found some striking similarities among all of the female serial killers that she studied. And most of them had fairly come from, like, really kind of like mundane backgrounds. And their primary weapon was poison, and nearly all of them killed people they knew, often their own family members, which by comparison, most victims of male serial killers are unknown. Walking down the street, complete, you know, unknown people, they just pull over and whack them and pull them into the car or whatever. And and quoting uh, Dr. Harrison here, she says that, this is a great quote, this kind of like really nails the idea on the head. She says that female serial killers gather whereas male serial killers hunt. And that was very interesting to her as an evolutionary psychologist because it reflects a kind of ancestral tendencies. Uh, She also drew evidence of evolutionary influences what drove women to kill. So while most murderers by male serial killers tend to involve sex in some way, the study found that male serial killers are characterized by a desire for domination, control, humiliation, sadistic sexual violence where women are more likely to kill for money or power. Which is is interesting, too, because, I mean, I think about the female serial killers that I know. I feel like How many do you know? uh, Well, no of. (laughs) 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 But, I mean, they, they kill their husbands, and the murder typically occurs in their home on their their own kind of turf. Mm -hmm. Like, they they have to have their their murder nest set up, Mm -hmm. ready to go. And uh, most of the serial killers played up their gender roles to their advantage. About two-thirds of them, for whom data was available, were described as having average or above-average attractiveness, <laughs> which the study says they exploited to elude suspicion and, of course, to lure their victims. It's the classic honeypot trap. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. What amazes me, though, is that if you look at the pictures of these women, how many husbands they had, or at yeah. least suitors that showed up, yeah. it's like... Different so times. They got, they got more red flags than a parade in China. <laughs> and like these dudes like just these dudes, these dudes just keep coming. You know? See, unfortunately, that tends to be my type. <laughs> so, so I mean, who knows? I might get to star in my own Netflix special. If you special. go missing one day, I'll be like, hmm, I have a theory. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Without a shadow of a doubt. These uh, lady killers also took on jobs in stereotypically feminine professions, such as nursing, caregiving, and teaching, which gave them access to vulnerable victims. And they were often given dainty or girlish nicknames that are jarling, jarringly dissonant from the horror of their crimes. I like this topic because it points out the fact that, you know, female serial killers operate differently than, you know, the male serial killers. Now, they're almost easy to catch, almost easy to recognize, where just, you know, women in very general terms, of course, are much more socially adept than men are. Even to the point where, like, autism... You know, the study of autism was so far behind in diagnosing girls because they're so, even with autism, they're so much better socially than men are that it's not as easily to spot them 
as it does with boys. Oh, yeah. And I mean, to you think about it, as far as like the way gendered child upbringing is, girls are, are taught a lot more to be meek and quiet and and to be kind of submissive. You know, and I'm not saying that's right. That's just kind of, unfortunately, the way a lot of traditional parenting kind of is. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, these these things don't get looked at. They get kind of pushed to the side. Yeah. And, you know, again, going back to like the kind of the evolutionary psychology side of things, I mean, women are just physically less powerful than men. That's just that's just fact. You know, it's a scientific fact. So they can't overwhelm, you know, men. So if they, for whatever reason, have this bent to be a killer, they can't just roll up on you and start kicking your ass. That's a huge disadvantage. So it's got to be a more subtle way of going about it get you in a vulnerable state or you know, poison you or get you, you know, asleep or whatever. And then they can carry out whatever their sick minds want to do. They can't pull a Ted Bundy and break into a sorority house with a, with a log and kill five women. I wonder how much, you know, style points quote, quote goes into the, the MO of female serial killers, because I feel mm-hmm. like they're a lot more planned out. The male kills, like we've talked about, are more of an opportunity kind of thing, whereas the female yeah. kills are a lot more intricate. Well, you can see, planning. like Belle Gunnis, the, the links she went to, newspaper ads, bring them to the house, get their money first. And, and then, then uh, whack them. Yeah, and then, you know, get the drop on them. Right, and cut them into pieces and, and put them in the hog farm. Yeah, and even she had a guy, you know, he was still smitten with her, that he was willing to help out and do a lot of the dirty work. And again, even though the Lavinia Fisher stuff never happened, it's textbook by what this modern psychologist is talking about. It's weird how that story, which grew up over the years into this big legend with, with little historical fact, totally falls in line with what um, Dr. Harris is talking about. And I think for me, the Bell Gunna story is very interesting and unique in the fact that the male character in that story is the the patsy, is the sidekick, the assistant, <laughs> whatever you want to call him. Yeah. Because in a lot of you know male male female um, true crime stories, yeah, it's typically the guy that's the the leader. And the girl is the one that she's gotten kind of drug along into this, yeah. even though she may be just every bit as sadistic as the guy. Yeah. It's always painted that the guy was the leader. So the Bell Gunness, you know. It, yeah. Hashtag smash the patriarchy there. Uh, <laughs> she's <was> literally. <laughs> literally Bell, Bell Gunness. There you go is your, your new yeah. icon. And an- another kind of sick, you know, angle on this is that um, because it's a woman, like the law enforcement, they're much less likely to suspect her. So they get kind of a, a longer time to operate because it's just harder to believe that, that a woman would be doing these things. So she gets more time to kill as opposed to, you know, like a in general, again, I'm just speaking in general terms here, um, like, like a, a male serial killer would get to, to stay active. And, of course, that means more victims over time. One good quote I wanted to leave off with here um, from Dr. Harris. She says that contrary to preconceived notions about women being incapable of these extremes, the women in her study poisoned, smothered, burned, choked, bludgeoned, and shot newborns, children, elderly, and sickly people, as well as healthy adults, most of them who they knew and likely trusted them. So that kind of adds an even like, um, not only are you preying on the victim people, but 
or on the like, vulnerable people, but people that they knew and trusted them, you know, even for their like healthcare. And that's, and we'll do an episode down the road on the, the angels of death, which is kind of, which is a term that's used for serial killers that kill in, in a healthcare setting. Yeah. But a lot of times in those cases, it's done as, as, as a very twisted idea of doing a mercy killing, like putting mm-hmm. somebody out of their misery, uh, even though it's you know, not remotely the case, but these killers in their mind have this idea that they're doing a, a service to their victims. Do you think there's a, a, a narcissistic element to that, too, where it's almost like, I'm this great person who's doing this great moral act. Look at me. Oh, absolutely. How wonderful I am for relieving these people of their misery. 100%. No, nah, you're just a killer. <laughs> right. No, exactly. You've just figured out a way to justify your own sadistic actions. Right. Justification. That's a great That's That's, a great term. that's all it is. And I think most of these cases, uh, all of them really, have this weird twisted justification. Mm-hmm. Like I yeah. think with the Bell Gunna stuff, she accused the men of, of cheating on her or beating on her. Yeah. You know, Eileen Wernos accused them of attacking her. They were all her. rapists. They were all rapists. Yeah. And it it really does. There's always a weird justification. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the male serial killers, it's like, no, I'm just fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> and I just I just wanted to kill. But it seems like all of them, male or female alike, like they do they don't really accept a lot of the responsibility. They're not no. accountable at all. It's all like, well, I'm almost justified in doing this because of some screwed up reason in their minds or it's chilling stuff. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us on this murderous episode of Gravedigger Radio. And if you like what we're doing here and you want to help us keep doing it, head over to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Gravedigger Radio. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, head over to our Buy Me a Coffee, which we have set up as Buy Me a Beer at buymeacoffee.com forward slash gravedigger. Tune in next time for the spooky tale.